Welcome to the A Jesus Church podcast. We're a family seeking to become like Jesus, empowered by His presence to partner in God's creative work of restoring the world. We pray this episode encourages and equips you along the journey. We are going to be looking at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. We're in week four of a series that we have entitled Rediscovering Church. We're examining, and in some cases re-examining, what this community, this family that we call the church is all about. Uh, We've looked at ideas like mission, empowered uh, by the Holy Spirit with our eyes fixed on Jesus. We, We looked at formation through imitation. And then last week we explored the Bible's kind of description of family roles in our homes and in our churches, and what does it look like to, to, to call and equip a new generation of spiritual moms and dads to raise up another generation of passionate followers of Jesus? This last week, <clears throat> Brittany and I, we had the uh, privilege of being able to go and attend a conference at Moody Bible in Chicago. Really, it was just an excuse to go visit our two kids that are out there, uh, which was awesome. Uh, and the theme of the conference was Rekindled fanning the flame of our calling. Um, It it was powerful. It's like amazing testimonies from from pastors and leaders in the city of Chicago uh, who are are pressing back against the darkness of their city. Uh, There was calls to resilience and to not giving up, to being the family that God has called us to be. And then on the last night, uh, the president of Moody um, got up and and he preached out of Revelation 3. And he called the students, over a thousand students that were in the room, he called them out of lukewarm faith. And he he called on God to send the fire of renewal. And he invited the students to like, to just basically to say like, I want in. In fact, he had this great like door up on stage and preaching from that passage. It's like Jesus is like standing at the door knocking and he's just waiting that the door would be open, that we would just basically say, yes, Lord, we want it all. Not just like the little bits of you, not just part of you, but all of you. We want in. And you know what happened? Hundreds of students poured out of their seats, filled the front, in front of the stage, filled the rows, many, most, on their face before the Lord, many of them weeping, desiring that God would move in their generation, desiring that God would move in their own hearts. It's there. It's, it's like right there. The hunger and the yearning, the, they're all at like this boiling point in this next generation. Revival is teetering. It's right on the edge. It's almost at the tipping point. God is on the edge of moving in our day. And we can feel it. It's like it's in the wind. But the problem is, as I've processed this with other like leaders and churches and even with my own kids, is that many of those willing hearts, many of those young willing hearts will, will be slid back into numbness, back into comfort, back into apathy by the end of next week because they don't have spiritual moms and dads to stand beside them, to walk with them. 
to help them understand, to know what it means to be a part of the family, to stay faithful in the family, to, to push back against the apathy, to push back against the distractions and to just put their heart all in. They need moms and dads. The pastors at the conference, they kept saying, man, if God could move in Chicago, he could move anywhere. And the whole time I'm thinking like, man, if God could move in Portland, he could move anywhere. The whole time, if God could transform this city, he could transform any city. Do we believe this? God is calling his family. He's calling us to rise up. He's, he's separating out those who are just kind of in it for the show from those whose hearts are like fully wanting to be in his glory. And this, this is why we're studying 1 Thessalonians. So we're gonna take a look at the second half of chapter two. And if you would just rise up to your feet, I'm gonna start reading from verse 13. 1 Thessalonians 2 starting in verse 13, says this. And we also thank God continually because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as a human word, but as it actually is, the word of God, which is indeed at work in you who believe. For you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of God's churches in Laodicea and Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. You suffered from your own people the same things those churches suffered from the Jews who, who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and also drove us out. They displeased God and hostile to everyone in their efforts to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. In this way, they always heap up their sin to the limit. The wrath of God has come upon them at last. But brothers and sisters... When we were orphaned by being separated you from you for a short time in person, not in thought, out of our intense longing, we made every effort to see you. If we wanted to come to you, certainly I, Paul, did again and again, but Satan blocked our way. For what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes. Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and joy. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would teach us, O word of God, what it means to be transformed by you today. We need you to change us, to grow us. We need you to help us persevere in trial and hostility. Lord, we need you to lead us forward. Oh, word of God. Make us who you want us to be today, in this moment. We say yes, Lord. Challenge us in the places we need to be challenged Help us to lay down our idols. Help us to lay down the things that we're holding on to and just hold on to you with all that we have. Give us your heart, Jesus, today. Spirit, lead us. Father, protect us. We love you. We love you. 
This is all about you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. You guys can grab a seat. Now, before we jump into today's text, I kind of want to do like a little half step backwards. Let's pick up at the tail end of the text from last week. Um, where Paul, he's calls to the Thessalonian family. He, he's calling them to live the life in the kingdom and he reminds them of their calling. And he says this, he says that they were like fathers urging them, 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 12, to live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. Paul reminds this church of the, the kind of what was driving his heart the whole time that he spent with them. It was, it was this idea of living lives worthy of God. Our, our Father who is in heaven, who's called us into his kingdom, literally radiating his goodness and his power and his beauty, which is all the glory really is, this radiating power and goodness of God, that he would transform us, our lives, our homes, our families, our churches. We're we're to live as beachheads of goodness and truth, of justice and compassion, of faith, love, and hope in this world, wherever God has placed us for his kingdom. Or, or maybe said another way, our lives, our homes, our families, our churches are like cultural outposts for the kingdom of God. And we, we get to be the ambassadors. I had some friends who... Uh, recently returned from Disney World uh, where they went to Epcot and they got to experience a bunch of different cultures and all the stuff, right, throughout the park. They told us that the, the Canada section was very nice. It's very clean. <laughs> Tried the poutine, the various maple products. And I'm sure that they were apologized to many times by our cultural ambassadors from Canada saying sorry is kind of how we say um, basically. You know, you know that they have to have some sort of like cultural handbook, some sort of guidebook that they give to all these employees and Epcot to show them how to be like the ideal version of their culture. So this, this is what it means to look like this person to be, even though they're ambassadors, they come across from all over the world to be there. It's like, this is the ideal that you've got to represent, the, the character of this character. The point is, is that my friends, they experienced a small pocket of Canada within the very American experience of Disney, a place where the radiating glory of Canada was put on full display. For those of you who don't know, I'm Canadian, so I get to say all those kind of things. So this was what the Thessalonians did so, so, so well. They took their faith and their love and their hope and, and they put it into practice by creating Jesus-centered homes by being spiritual moms and dads, creating spaces where people could taste and see that the Lord is good. Where the lonely could find like kingdom families and belong. Where God's glory, his radiating power and beauty could be put on display for everyone to see and for everyone to experience. So what does this look like practically? How do we translate this into our Monday mornings? And most pressingly, why start here with this passage? Well, I'm glad you asked. The short answer is 
In a small way, like, like the kingdom and glory of Canada sits in contrast to the, the stark kingdom of Disney, so much greater, so much greater is the contrast of the kingdom and glory of God to this world that we live in. And, and practically, this means that we need to know the kingdom. We need to know it, and not just an, as an idea, but, but as a way of being. We need to know the kingdom so that we can live the kingdom. And we need to be able to radiate its culture and its values of our king, of our King Jesus. We need to know what the kingdom is like so that we can put the kingdom on display to be those cultural ambassadors for the kingdom of God, to study, the guide, and be tutored by the Holy Spirit. We need to be like those ambassadors, little, little beachhead places to occupy the kingdom in our midst, which brings us to the passage today. Because, of course, we need to study and we need to understand and we need to be tutored by the Spirit, which is where Paul is going in verse 13. He says this, And we also thank God continually because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as a human word, but as it actually is, the word of God which is indeed a, at work in you who believe. Paul picks up this conversation about, about family with Thanksgiving. And this is actually, this, his little Thanksgiving moments pop up in like three different places in the first few chapters of Thessalonians. It's in one verse two, here in verse 13, and then later in three verse nine. And it's like Paul is so thankful for this church, he can't help himself. He breaks from all of his normal patterns and all of his other letters because he just wants to let them know that he's thankful for them. In many ways, thanksgiving is one of the threads that kind of pulls all the fabric of this uh, little book together, this little letter together. This community, a family of faith, love, and hope. It's like, it's like Paul keeps having to say like, wow, you guys, you're amazing. Praise be to Jesus. Now, one of the main things that Paul is thankful for is how they received the word of God, which does create some questions for us. Like, what is the word of God? When he uses that phrase, what is he saying? And, and who actually was giving the word of God? Was it God or was it Paul? And what does Paul mean when he says, like, it's at work in you, in you who believe? Well, the word that Paul uses is kind of like this common word for logos in the original language, and it's used in a number of ways in the New Testament. But here in Thessalonians, Paul seems to be using it in a few or several very distinctive ways. First, the word of God is the gospel. Paul clearly references in the first two chapters that the work, that the word spoken to the Thessalonians was the gospel, the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus. This is the good news that Jesus, not Caesar, was and is king and that his kingdom was and is coming in power. The Thessalonians put their faith in a Messiah who was and is renewing the world, even as we speak, even in this moment. And that is where their hope came from. 
as Shelby shared kind of in week one, the gospel of Jesus, it, it's a message that stood in stark contrast to the message of Rome. The gospel of Jesus versus the gospel message of Rome. And, and this put the people of Jesus in a counter-cultural and often dangerous set of circumstances. It put them on a trajectory that meant that they were going to be persecuted. But when Paul talks about the word of God, he also is describing family values. I mean, those of us who maybe been around the church for a little bit longer, we might have heard the word or used the word doctrines. The kind of, the things, the things that we believe that describe the kingdom of God. What, what does it actually mean to be a part of this kingdom? And what does it actually mean to live a life worthy? Remember verse 12, a life in alignment with God's heart, in alignment with God's character. It's nuanced in the English text, but, but in verse 13, the original language carries with it the idea of receiving a tradition or, or receiving a training in the kingdom. And the, and the Thessalonians, they received this training with, with willingness and excitement uh, as students who loved the focus, who loved the content of their training. Additionally, Paul seems to go out of his way to be over the top clear that these words are God's words. They're literally, you could translate it, the voice of God. Think, thus saith the Lord, like the prophets of old. He says that the Thessalonians received the word from them. But another way of saying it, you could actually translate it this way, is to say that Paul passed God's words onto them. Think like a courier. And in fact, this is a part of the reason why they were so warmly received because, because it was like, these are God's words. We have to, they're precious. We have to take good care of them. Paul was like a courier for the message of God, and he, the one that God was sending on to the Thessalonians and ultimately to us sitting here in this room 2,000 years later. We need to catch how the Thessalonians listened and obeyed. God's words went to work in them. Part of the reason why there's all this fruit in the first couple chapters, all this stuff that happened, Paul was only with them for three weeks, but something set this church on fire. And it was because God's Living words were inside of them, moving them. Their receiving led to formation and submission. It's important. Another important note is like in Middle Eastern uh, culture, listening and obeying, they go hand in hand. They're not separated. You don't just like hear something and kind of like let it go in one ear and out the other. No, you listen to it, you receive it, you internalize it, and then you live it. But... There's more here. Remember uh, chapter one, verse five, Paul spoke with power and conviction. And this was because he was confident. He was speaking God's very words. My friends, people, people don't lay down their life for good ideas. They lay down their life for God ideas. There's no idea that's like good enough that a person's going to sacrifice themselves for it. But when, when people begin to, to taste the divine, when they begin to taste the, the, the fire of the Holy Spirit, they know like this is worth my life. 
The Thessalonians had tasted that divine communication and it pressed them into one more idea. And that is that the word of God that was passed on to the Thessalonians, it was energized. It literally moved in them. Think about the author of Hebrews. He puts it this way in in chapter four, verse 12, that the word is living and active. It, It cuts through thoughts. It shapes intentions. It does a work in those who believe. The word work in the original language is this great work. It's energetai. And it's where we get the word energy from. And it implies that the words themselves were infused with God's living power. That God's word is an instrument of his supernatural work. His word is infused with the Holy Spirit's presence. Again, remember chapter one, verse five, Paul's words came with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. So, so, So what is the relationship between all of these things? If God's word is the gospel, family values, the the voice of God, the energized, it's energized with power. What is the relationship between all of these things when God, when Paul talks about the word? Well, I think Paul's thanksgiving, his, his like, wow, is because the Thessalonians received the gospel and those core family training things as straight from God himself. And the fruit of that energizing power of God's word in their hearts was that they became fixated on the person of Jesus, who is, in fact, the living word of God. The word of God so embedded itself inside of the Thessalonians that they became enraptured with the person of Jesus, fixed on the person of Jesus, the living word at work inside of them, drawing them into the living work, the living word that stands over all creation as king. That living word now residing inside of them, inside of these these humble humans who are willing to say any time, any place, Jesus, I am yours. They surrender their hearts. But why does this matter? Why does this matter? Well, we keep on reading verse 14. For you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. You suffered from your own people the same things those churches suffered from the Jews who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and also drove us out. That that four at the beginning of verse 14, it introduces the evidence of the Thessalonians' lives. Their response to God's words and work was that they became imitators. Remember, from a couple weeks back, we talked about the idea of imitation uh, for formation, that we become formed as we imitate. But in this case, their imitation, the Thessalonians' imitation of Paul, imitation of Jesus, meant that they ended up looking a lot like the other churches out there who were also imitating Paul and the other apostles and Jesus. They all started to look a lot alike. It's kind of interesting to think about how churches, as we follow and submit our way to Jesus, we end up looking more and more like him and therefore like each other. It's beautiful. Their imitation of Paul, it it meant that they ended up heading down the same path of suffering, the same path of persecutions. As they imitated the apostles, they began to suffer just like the Jewish, Jewish churches in Judea had. 
for the sake of Jesus. It's a bit of an aside, but I do love how this passage reminds us and the Thessalonians that they're not alone. We're not alone. Just like their brothers, their Jewish brothers and sisters who are suffering for their faith in Jesus, this predominantly Gentile church was also suffering for Jesus. This first Jewish church, it, it had been persecuted by their own countrymen. And now in the same way, this Gentile church was being persecuted by its own countrymen. It was a form of like inclusive pain. They were not alone in their suffering. Now, this is super important for us to catch. If we're going to understand Paul's logic and what he's trying to accomplish in this text, we have to catch this. Obedience to the word of God, the way of Jesus, placed the Thessalonians on a path of suffering and persecution. It was the evidence of their obedience. As they lived lives worthy of God, worthy of his kingdom and his glory, their faithfulness to Jesus put them on a collision path with many of their city's values and goals. Make no mistake, my friends, this will be our story as well. If you haven't experienced it yet, you will. And I know for many years, it's, been, it's kind of been easier for us to think about as persecution as something that happens out there. Our stories that we hear about churches, maybe from around the world, or maybe in little small pockets, we've experienced it. But this will be the story of those who choose to follow the way of Jesus we will not always be liked. In fact, Jesus told us, be wary when all men and women speak well of you. You will not always be liked. Now, to be clear, I want to be super clear. I'm not talking about being belligerent or obnoxious. I'm talking about walking the path of faith, love, and hope. Placing our faith in Jesus. Not, not the little G gods of our city. Not, not, not the other things that compete for our attention and our time. Placing our faith in Jesus, it will create persecution. Loving God with all of our heart and our neighbor as ourself, it's gonna mean that we're gonna get hate poured back at us. I don't understand why, but it's just how it works but we give ourselves to love like Jesus did. The one we follow, the one who went all the way to the cross for love. We put our hope in our King and his someday returning and the fact that we live for something so much bigger than just this, not in our stuff, not in our entertainment or our comfort, like the Thessalonians, faithfulness to the way of Jesus will put us on a collision path with many of our city's values and goals. It may even put us on a collision path with other Christians, but our response is our responsibility. Our response is our responsibility. And our real enemy is not the people shaking their fists at us or gossiping or slandering or cursing us out. That is not our real enemy. Our real enemy is Satan, the deceiver. 
Our real enemy is the one who accuses us before God, the one who sticks his finger in our chest. He is our real enemy. And so we need to readjust our perspective. We do fight, but we do not fight as the world fights. Second Corinthians 10 verse three says, for though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight are, are not the weapons of our world, on the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. You want to demolish strongholds? Divine powers where it's at. We demolished arguments and every pretense, everything that tries to set itself up against knowledge of our God, of Jesus. How do we do that? We take every thought captive. Everything that comes in, we grab it. And we make it submit to the way and the will of our King Jesus. And when something broken comes up in us, we punish it. We, we discipline it. We change it. We break it off. We become who we need to be so that our obedience might be complete. Make no mistake, Christian. We do fight in fact, we do go to war. We just don't get distracted by the red herring in the room. We stop taking our fight to an already broken world that needs healing. It doesn't need more hate. We stop trying to fight the people in front of us and we take our real fight to the enemy of our souls. We take the fight, the war to the inside. How do you deal with persecution? How do you deal with suffering that's coming at you from the outside? You become stronger in the inside through Jesus Christ, our King. You fight the external fights by learning how to fight the internal fights. We become the people who God has called us to be, the family who God has called us to be on the inside. We go to war against the enemy's intentions. But here's the thing. It was the word of God itself that helped sustain the Thessalonian church on their path. It was actually God's word that gave them the strength to stay on the path, even when they were colliding with the culture, even then they were getting persecuted by the culture. In fact, the word of God made the path even walkable. And it was the word of God that has the power to help us endure suffering, endure, endure persecution, endure betrayal, endure disappointment, Anybody else experienced any of that over the last number of years? Man, it's God's word that gives us the ability to fight. A number of years back, I was going through it. And I got myself into a situation where I felt like I, felt like I was taking it on every side beginning to feel like my world was coming down on me, that all the people that I thought were supposed to be for me were turning against me. And I got to this place where I was like, I don't know how to do this. And a person, I think it was actually at a prayer time here, spoke this verse over me. They're like, this, I think this verse is for you. You need to go to Psalm 27, verse 13. And it goes like this. I remain confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. 
I remember saying that verse over and over and over again in that season. And I keep saying that verse over and over and over again. I am confident I will see the goodness of the God here, now, in this day, in this time. Not just someday, I believe that as well, but God's given me a promise that that I'll see his goodness here. And I don't know about you guys, but I need that. But after praying it and holding on to it and holding on to it, it felt like I had this mental image. When I was a little kid, I got, I was holding on to like a, a, uh, one of those beach balls and I was floating away out into the middle of this lake and I didn't know how to swim very well, well but the beach ball kept shrinking and shrinking and shrinking. And I was holding on for dear life until somebody kind of came and rescued me. But I had this image of like holding on to this verse as if it was like my life jacket, the thing that was keeping my head above water that was helping me to float. And I remember crying out to God, like, God, I need more. Like I, this, I'm running out of air here, Lord. I need more. And he said, keep on reading. Verse 14, wait for the Lord, be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. Friends, how how do we persevere in the midst of the difficult? We hold on with all of our strength to God's word. And, and I do definitely, most definitely mean the scriptures, but I mean more than that. I mean the living word of God who energizes us, who gives us the power that we need to be the people that we need to be. We don't have the strength to do it ourselves. You might be a pretty strong person. You might be thinking like, I can do this. You can't. For the rest of us in this room that already know that we can't, We need to keep reminding ourselves we need God's power, his very living and available power to sustain us. We need his word. So how do we do this? Well, I want to do something. I tried it out during the nine and it didn't fall completely flat. So I'm hoping it'll work here in the 11. I want to do a little of this out together. I'm just going to throw a a verse up on the screen. I'm going to read it out. And and I want you to reflect. Maybe even in this passage is a promise, is a truth, something that God's whispering to you, like, you could hold on to this. Like, this is for you. Psalm 1, verse 1 through 3 says, Blessed is the one who does not walk in the step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is is in the law of the Lord, in in, in God's word, and who meditates on it day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of living water. Is there anybody out there who needs some living water today? They're like a They're like a person, like a tree planted by streams of living water, which yields fruit in season. I mean, have you been waiting for the fruit? It's like, where is the fruit, Lord? Where's the fruit? And whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. What an incredible promise. You feel like you're withering? Plant yourself by streams of water, God says. Is there a promise in here for you? Is there 
Is there a word of faith in here for you? Hold on to it. Hold on to it. John 1.1 1, 1 says this. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. This is Jesus we're talking about. He was there in the beginning and in him was life. Anybody in the room need life today? And that life, it was the light of all mankind. Anybody in the room needs some light today? You find darkness in parts of your soul, darkness in parts of your story. Do you need the light that shines in the darkness? Well, he's there. And he loves you. And he's for you. The light, it shines in the darkness. And guess what? The darkness has not overcome it and it will never overcome it. Is there a promise in there for you? Is there a word that God is speaking to you right now to hold on to, to preach to yourself through? As we wrap up, I do, I do want to take us back to the original Thessalonian passage and, and just that, those last couple verses that Paul says, verse 19, he says this. For what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and joy. Paul very subtly references the laurel wreath that would have been given to the victor in the games as they competed and when they won. The Thessalonians were Paul's hope, their joy. Their, it was his declaration of victory in Jesus. What I love about how Paul stations himself, positions himself in this passage is it's not like he's the one getting the crown. No, it's, it's actually, it's more like for, for any of the moms and dads out there who got kids in sports and you see them do something awesome, or maybe it's like your roommate, it's more like he's the proud parent. He's standing on the sidelines saying, that's my boy. That's my girl. I am so proud of you. I'm, you are my glory. You are the reason why I'm doing this. Friends, there's a call in this passage, not just to those who are trying to make their way through the suffering, through the persecution. There's a call in this passage for those of us who need a purpose, who need a life. Paul's like, you are my joy. Maybe you've been walking with Jesus for a season and you're wrestling. Maybe, maybe it's just because like nothing's going anywhere. Maybe you're feeling a little too comfortable. Maybe you're just like kind of tired of the status quo. Friends, Jesus is whispering right now. I can hear his voice for you, okay? He's whispering right now. He's saying, come on, 
I need some more moms and dads. I need some more people cheering on the sideline, jumping up out of the stands, running up and down alongside the field saying, go, 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 go. Because we are on the cusp. We are on the edge of the next awakening, the next time God's spirit is going to move. And this church needs to be ready. We need moms and dads, spiritual moms and dads who are willing to say, I want in. I think this passage has two sets of questions, two challenges for two different people. And I wanna, I wanna speak them out over us and maybe send you into this week to contemplate. And the first one is this. Maybe you're in that place. You're facing the suffering. You're facing the persecution. You're facing the, the, the intense againstness. And there's a call to hold on in the midst of that, to not give up in the midst of that, to, to believe that Jesus has you. What is the gospel promise that God is calling you to cling to today? What's he he's putting your finger on it right now in your heart? He's like, I want you to hold to this. Preach it to yourself. Remind yourself of this truth. Do not forget. What's the promise that God is calling you to? Maybe you're, but maybe you're in the other category. You're, you're the ones, you've been here for a while. You've been a part of this Jesus kingdom thing for a season. And now it's time to like step up, to step in a little deeper. And maybe this is the call that God's got. He's whispering to you. And, and the question is, is, who is God calling you to invest in? Who is God calling you to be a spiritual mom or dad to, to step into their lives, to begin cheering them on? It could be your own kids. But maybe, maybe you're like, oh, I'm like 27. I'm not married. I'm not, I don't have any kids. Well, maybe, maybe it's, maybe it's your, a younger brother, a younger sister. Maybe it's somebody that you know that God's just saying, like, step in, invest. Cheer on, like, like Paul did with that laurel reef. Who is God calling you towards? Thanks for listening. For more resources and to partner with us through giving, visit us at ajesuschurch.org.